I want to start today by asking you kind of a personal question, and it's this. How long did it take you to get ready this morning? Start to finish, how long did it take for you to clean yourself up and get ready for church? Did you uh, jump into the shower? Did you wash your hair? Did you, hopefully you brushed your teeth? Did you pick out some fresh, new, clean clothes? From the moment you thought, oh my gosh, I need to start getting ready for church, until that last moment when you give yourself one more look over in the mirror before you leave, how long did that take? Some of us, it took probably 20 minutes, some of us 30 minutes, maybe even over an hour. But we all have our routines. We know what works for us. We have all these steps that we take to get ourselves clean and ready for the day. See, we all want to be clean. You clean yourself up for work. You clean yourself up for church. You really clean yourself up if you're going on a big date. If you're like me, you even clean yourself up before you go to the dentist for a cleaning. None of us want to be that person who's stinking up the room. None of us want to be that person that people don't want to touch or get close to. None of us want to be that person that people uh, find reprehensible or unclean because we all want to be clean, right? But the problem is, the problem is that sometimes what we think makes us clean doesn't actually make us clean. You know, when Isaiah, my first son, was born, obviously the mothers, they bear the brunt of all the responsibilities for the newborn baby. So I was like, you know what, I want one thing that I can do, that it can be my thing with our son. And so I chose bath time. It's like every day I'm going to give Isaiah, our baby, a bath. And so I was doing it, and I was giving him a bath, and I'd dry him off, and I would get him dressed for bed. And then at some point, Dury came in, and she watched me give him a bath, and I took him out, and I started to dry him off. And she's like, wait, hold on, is that it? I was like, yeah, that's it. I, I washed him off, I washed his hair, I used soap on his body, whatever. She's like, but you just took him directly out of the bath and now you're drying him and you're going to put him into clean clothes. I was like, yeah. She's like, he's not clean. He's just been sitting in this bathtub kind of stewing in his own dirtiness and then you're going to take him out and directly put him into clean clothes. What you have to do is you have to rinse him off. You have to rinse him off after the bath which I thought was kind of an extra step, but it kind of makes sense. You're not really clean until you rinse off. Or I was uh, reading that, um, you know those uh, soap dispensers in, in public bathrooms? If that soap dispenser, if that liquid soap dispenser isn't one of those like replaceable bags that you see in hospitals, if they're just taking that dispenser and dumping other soap in it, then I've seen some studies that show one out of four of those soap dispensers are contaminated. And it's possible that they have so much bacteria and mold growing in that liquid soap that after washing your hands, your hands could be dirtier than they were before. That's gross. But the, and, and it goes back to this idea that, is that sometimes what we think is making us clean isn't really making us all that clean. This idea of clean versus unclean is central to today's passage. In it, you see the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they're confronting Jesus again. And this conflict, the conflict this time, it's about ritual washing. Now, this passage is not about why you wash your hands before you eat. Just to make it clear, I don't want anybody to think, well, I'm not going to wash my hands because Jesus doesn't like that. What Jesus is rebuking this central to the conflict is the Pharisees believe that this ritual washing will keep them 
spiritually clean. Spiritually clean. See, the Bible often talks about sin as uncleanness. Today's passage, if you remember, it talks about things like being unwashed or defiled. Another example is in Zechariah 3. Zechariah has this vision of Joshua the high priest, and it reads this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning snake snatched from the fire? And then it says this, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. You see the same kind of theme running through this passage, the idea of being filthy or being dirty, unfit or unacceptable. But on the other hand, you have God who's perfectly pure, perfectly clean in every way. There's no blemish, there's no speck of dirt, nothing spoiled or tainted or contaminated or polluted about him. He is utter purity, right? And then there's us, not so much. You, you can't really say those things about us. And so if God is that clean, then the problem is that we can't go anywhere near him. God is clean and pure, and sin is something that defiles us and makes us unclean. Psalm 24 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And what he's, the psalmist is saying is, who can walk up to God and be in his presence? Who can stand before him? Who can be God's friend? And he answers it here. He who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Cleanness is what you need to approach God. Uncleanness makes you unfit to stand before God and to be in his presence. The question then becomes, do you think that you're clean? Do you think that you're spiritually clean? I think I told some of you guys, but a couple of weeks ago, my younger son, Isaiah, came down with hand, foot, and mouth disease, and it's a pretty unattractive uh, sickness. You kind of get these uh, blemishes or spots all over your body. You break out in these things. It's very uncomfortable. He was miserable, and he just needed me to be around him all day. It was very tiring. I had to con- constantly console him. I was exhausted. But after a whole day of this, my wife, Jerry, came home. She's like, he hasn't been eating. He hasn't been drinking. Can you go to the drugstore and can you buy him some, something to drink, like a Gatorade or something? So I went to the drugstore and I bought some Gatorade. And I was walking back to my condo building. And I noticed the person that was walking in front of me uh, was the man who lives in the penthouse of my building. I'm not going to say his name, but he's a billionaire. Right? I've seen him on CNBC before. Uh, Him and his wife are on the boards or the presence of a lot of fine art societies around Chicago. And so I'm walking behind him. He's going to the elevator. And do you know what I did? I pretended that I had to go get my mail. Because I hadn't had time to shower that day. I was totally unkept. I was covered in all this bacteria or viruses or germs or something. And I thought to myself, I cannot actually be in this man's presence. I can't even share an elevator with him. So I pretended that I had to do something so I would get in the next elevator. And the thing is, if we find ourselves too dirty or unclean to be in the presence of a billionaire who's just a mere man, how can we fathom standing before God 
himself. But the thing is, many of us struggle to actually believe that we are unclean. We feel like we're okay. We feel like we're pretty good people. We can relate to little Jack Horner from that nursery rhyme. Do you guys remember that? Little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? For many of us, that nursery rhyme actually explains the human disposition in our lives. We stick our thumbs into life, we pull out a plum, and we say, what a good boy am I? I'm good, I do the right things, I make the right decisions. I'm not sinful, I'm a good person. I'm not dirty, I'm clean. Well, can I suggest to you that if you're here today and you feel that way, what this passage is telling you, what Jesus told these religious leaders 2,000 years ago is the same thing that he's telling you today. And it's this, that you're probably a lot more sinful than you probably realize. And that what you think is making you clean it's probably not really working. And I'm not doing this to berate anybody or to point fingers at anybody and try to make you feel ashamed about yourself. I don't want to beat you up over the fact that you're sinful, but we're going to spend time in today's sermon talking about what it means to be unclean and what sin is because if you have a small view of sin, then you'll have a small view of Jesus. And if you have a better understanding of what it means to be unclean, It will help us get a clearer picture of Jesus. So for today, we're going to have three points. The first is sin is not a behavioral problem. It's a relational problem. The second is we have a relational problem with God because we don't submit to his authority. And the last point is this. The good news is that Jesus has the authority to declare us clean and restore our relationship with God. So again, the first point is sin is not a behavioral problem. It's a relational problem. From time to time, Maybe it's because I'm in a pastoral role, but people will ask me this question. How can it be right that someone who has lived a really, really good life, a good person, who's done good things, who's kind and patient and altogether lovely, how can it be right that that person would be separated or even punished by God? How could that be fair? And that's a good question. It's a tough question because honestly, even me as somebody who has a lot of family members people that I love who aren't Christian, it doesn't seem right to us. Now imagine, imagine if there was this perfect husband competition, right? And imagine that for some reason I decided to enter. I was like, I think I can win that competition. So I'm filling out this application and they're asking me on it, you know, list the reasons why you're the perfect husband. I say, okay, number one, I buy my wife flowers weekly. Number two, uh, I take out the garbage whenever she asks. Actually, think to myself, I didn't take out the garbage this morning. But just pretend. Uh, I take out the garbage every day. Uh, number three, I provide for my wife. I'm like, I do all those things for her. And like, I turn in the application, and for whatever reason, the judges are impressed. Right? And they're like, oh, this guy does sound like a really good husband. He does sound like the candidate for the Husband of the Year Award. And so they push me through to the next round. The next round is to interview my wife. Right? And they say to her, Yuri, does he really buy you flowers every week? And she's like, yeah, he does. Does he really take out the garbage every day? Yeah, mo- most of the time he does. Does he really provide for you? Yeah, he does all of those things. He does them. But then she adds this. But he never ever speaks to me. He ignores me all the time. 
now am I a good husband? Because here's the thing, if it's just focused on what I do and my behavior, then technically I am still a good husband because I do a lot of good stuff. But it's not, it's a relational thing. If I spend my whole life just ignoring my wife and neglecting her while I'm buying the flowers, while I'm taking out the trash, while I'm doing all this stuff, I'm not a good husband because it doesn't matter how good my behavior is. But because we think sin is a behavioral problem, we always respond to God by saying, but I do all this stuff. I go to church. I pay my taxes. I don't swear. I don't sleep around. I do all this stuff for you, God. But God is standing over here and saying, but you're ignoring me. I love you. I made you. I created you. I pursue you. And yet you reject me and you turn from me. There's this great passage in Proverbs that I think reflects the heart of God. And the the writer says, my son... Give me your heart. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. And see, that is why sin at its core is not a relational relational problem and not a behavioral problem. And you see it in today's passage. We'll read from it. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You see... The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews at the time, they were doing all this stuff. And it was making them really critical of Jesus' disciples. Passage continues, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So you see what's happening here is the Pharisees are taking cleanness, something that should be absolute, and they're making it relative. Right? If you think about cleanness versus uncleanness, this should be an absolute thing, not a relative thing. If you forgot to use your deodorant and you showed up to your friend's house and you were kind of smelling off, but there was another person who was really smelling badly, it wouldn't make you feel good about yourself. It doesn't matter that you're less smelly than the person who smells really bad. You're either smelly or you're not. Likewise, if you work with somebody who really has poor uh, personal hygiene and doesn't shower for weeks, the natural response isn't to be like, well, now the standards are lower, so I can let myself go a little bit. You can't say, well, I'm clean because I'm relatively cleaner than this other person. You're either clean or you're not. It's an absolute thing, not relative. And spiritual cleanliness is an absolute thing in the same way. You're either spiritually clean or you're not. Especially when you're standing before Jesus himself, who is holy and righteous and pure and clean, the proper response for all these people should have been like Isaiah when he sees God. Woe is me, and I am unclean. But instead, the Pharisees see spiritual cleanness as relative. And they look at other people and say, well, at least my hands are not as unclean as your disciples defiled hands. 
That's what human religion does. This is what happens when I say I'm going to make myself clean and presentable before a holy and perfect God. You just end up comparing yourselves to other people to make yourself feel better about yourself. You just sit and say, well, I'm cleaner than that person. But the same risk, the same thing that's happening to the Pharisees can happen to us. When we have that mentality and we're just comparing our cleanness to the people around us, we risk missing out on the God and the Jesus who's standing right there in front of us. The passage continues, and he said to them, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And the word hypocrite here is, if you translate it from the Greek, is, is, is like actor. And he's not talking about like Denzel Washington or Meryl Streep kind of like Academy Award winning kind of acting. But he's talking about someone who's pretending or fronting or faking it. You know, I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I got diagnosed with uh, sleep apnea. Uh, you guys are young, so you probably aren't aware of it. Maybe your dads have it. But um, they gave me this machine that basically I had to wear when I sleep, and it pumps oxygen into my lungs. It's funny because, like, Dury went out one night with her friend, so I had Matthew sleeping with me. In the middle of the night, he woke up, and he saw me with this mask, and he just freaked out. <laughs> he was, like, screaming and inconsolable. But the thing is, this CPAP machine is what they call it. It's, it's tricky because it's expensive, so the insurance company actually automatically gets all the data from how I use it. So to actually have the insurance company pay for it, I had to hit a minimum number of nights for, a minimum of hours per night for a minimum number of nights. So it's like, there's a lot of pressure actually when you're sleeping. And so I think the minimum of hours is five hours, and I woke up one morning and I looked at the machine, it said 4.9. So then I put the mask on, and then I just, pretended to breathe like I do when I sleep. But how can you do that? You don't know what it, you breathe like when you sleep. How do you even pretend or trick a machine? It's impossible. But likewise, how do you pretend to be godly? How do you pretend to be holy? You can't give a good performance. You're just going to end up faking it and acting and pretending. And that's why Jesus calls these people hypocrites. You're doing a bad job of pretending to be holy and clean. He continues, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And can you hear it? It's like the same as when the wife is saying, He does all this stuff, but he's ignoring me. God is saying, these people say they're doing all this stuff for me, but they're not. They don't love me, they ignore me, they've forsaken me, they've turned their backs on me. And that's the issue. We have to design, define sin as a relational problem and not a behavioral problem. It's, it, it, sin is, I'm unclean, not because of what I do, but I'm unclean because I've ignored and rejected God. And that can be true about very religious, very good, very moral people who do really good things. And so we have to have this accurate understanding of sin because if we define sin as being naughty, then what is the solution? The solution then is to just try harder to be nice. And that's what most religions are about. You've done some bad stuff, but here, just try to be better. Now, if I tell you that you're a sinner because you've broken God's rules, that you've broken God's law, that's true, but it's not the whole story. The danger is that if we define sin simply as the bad things that I do, then we'll totally miss out on what Jesus came to do for us. 
You see, if sin is purely behavioral, then Jesus himself just becomes a glorified elf on the shelf. I've seen the bad things that you do. Now just work harder, be good, and I will reward you. But sin at its root is that I've ignored and forsaken the God who created me. It's a relational thing. And that leads us to our second point. We have a relational problem with God because we don't submit to his authority. We have a relational problem with God because we don't submit to his authority. You see it throughout this passage. In verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. In verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. In verse 11, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and many such things you do. And so what's going on here is that they've rejected God's word and replaced it with the traditions of man. They have two sources of authority, God's word and human tradition. God's, what God says versus what I think. And what they've done is they've rejected God's word and, and replaced, it with what, replaced it with what they thought was best. This is what's acceptable to me. This is what works for me. This is how I think I should live. This is what I think is the best way to be clean. And if you go back to the marriage thing, like if, 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 if I'm talking about, well, I'm a good husband because I buy flowers and take out the garbage and provide for my wife, are those bad things? No, they're not. Those are good things. I would hope every husband would have some kind of resolutions that he would hope to live by in order to love his wife better. But the danger is, the danger is when those things replace the love. When you start to equate those things with love, when you say, okay, well, I can just do these five things and then I'm good. And that's what's happening with this conflict between the traditions of men and the word of God. What started out as a good thing when they're taking the word of God and saying, we want to keep this word, we want to honor God, so we'll add in all these other, other laws and rules so that we can better understand what it means to keep these laws. It's become something of a religion in and of itself. So, for example, the fourth commandment, it's to, to keep the Sabbath. The idea is to take off one day for, of work from the week and just honor God and worship God on that day. But what does that even look like? So these traditions, the elders came in and they're like, well, let's just add a couple hundred rules about what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath day. Good intentions probably in the beginning, but if you start to focus too much on the law, then are you really restful on that day? You're always being careful about what you can and can't do. And suddenly the Sabbath becomes a day of work and legalism. In today's passage, he's taught, Jesus talks about the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother. And he's talking about this this, this, this tradition where they've come up where you can just declare things Corbin. You can say, this is dedicated to God. My house, my farm, my land, this is dedicated to God. Sounds like a pretty good thing, but what people were doing is they were being manipulative or exploitative, and they were saying, well, when my father and mother come to me, and for whatever reason, out of economic need, they say, we need some financial help, which is biblical, honor thy father and mother. They're saying, I can't do it anymore because I've dedicated all this stuff to God. I can't help you anymore. I can't honor you. And what's happened is God's word has been pushed out and lost. The issue of God's word versus the tradition of the elders is this. What is your authority? Who are you going to listen to? 
right? If you only obey God when you agree with him, then who has the authority? It's you, like you're God in that situation. You say, I'll do everything that God says as long as I agree with it. You're not really submitting to his authority if you only submit when you agree. True authority exists only when you commit to do something that you do not agree with, something that you wouldn't normally do. And that, that's dangerous. That's scary. That's uncomfortable. Because if you give that true authority to God, then he can ask you to do anything. He can ask anything of you, and you'd have to surrender everything to him. But that's what it means to submit to his authority. You don't get to choose. God chooses, and you obey. And you might stop me here and be like, I need to ask a question. Uh, What happened to all the loving stuff? What happened to grace? What happened to talking about that we're the beloved of God? Why are you talking about authority right now? Because it seems like you're just talking about obedience, obedience, obedience. Can we get back to talking about love and grace? Well, Jesus says this thing in John chapter 14. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. And what he's saying is obedience and love, they go together. For many of us, we don't feel like they should go together because we want to be independent. Nothing is more valuable than the individual expression of myself. Obedience Giving authority to someone else or something else feels like I'm being controlled or stifled or even manipulated. We don't want anybody to have that power or authority over us. But I would argue that obedience is necessary for love to flourish. It's necessary. Think about a time when you've been romantically interested in somebody. Right? What do you do? You investigate, kind of, right? You do your research. You find out what makes them happy. You find out what they don't like. And in a sense, you start to change for that person. This happened for me, like when I, when Dury, my wife, when we were dating, she came by and she looked at my bedroom. And I I would describe my room as messy, not dirty. Like clothes everybody wear, but it's not like there's moldy food in the corner. So messy, but not dirty. But Dury, Dury, who's a very clean person, looked at the room, and she cried. And she said, is this what my life is going to become? And so what did I do? I changed for her. I didn't change for my mother. Sorry, Mom. I didn't change for my roommates. I changed for the woman that was going to be my wife. Why? Because I love her. Maybe she'd like me to change more, but but I've changed. And you can call it honoring the other person or loving someone, but effectively what you're doing is you're giving that other person authority over your life. You're letting what makes that person happy or upset dictate what you do or how you act, right? That's what love is. You can say, well, that's not for me. I want to be an individual. I want to keep myself, I want to keep all the power to myself. I want to keep it real. Sure, you can keep it real. Real alone. Because if you're not willing 
to give your authority over your life to someone else, you will never, ever experience love. And I understand why some of you guys might have reservations about this point. Some of you guys have come from relationships, from broken families. Some of you guys have been in abusive relationships. And the idea of giving over authority to another person, that's a really hard thing for you to accept. And that's totally true. It can be horrible and manipulative, manipulative and hurtful when this kind of relationship is one-sided. When only one side gives and the other side just takes and takes and takes. But it's beautiful when both sides are doing this, giving authority, submitting to each other. That's what it means when we talk about marriage, when we talk about two becoming one flesh. And in our relationship with God, he says, I want you to obey, not because I'm a bully and not because I'm a rule giver who's on this horrific power trip, but I want you to obey because I want intimacy with you. If you think back to Exodus 20, that's when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? But if you think about right beforehand, he says this in Exodus 19. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the nations. God is not saying, if you will obey, then I will save you. It's not what he said. God saved the people first. He's saying to them, you didn't have to do anything. There was no battle between you and the Egyptians. You didn't have to pick up weapons. You bear no scars. I did everything. You did nothing. I didn't do it because you were obedient. I didn't do it because you obeyed the law. You didn't even have the law yet. I did it. I loved you because that was sheer unmerited grace. So why, God, do you ask us to obey? And he says in that passage, so you can be my treasure. God's saying, you need to obey me if you want to be in this relationship, this intimate relationship with me. And we will never experience the intimate relationship with God as long as we refuse to submit to his authority. And the last point is this, the good news is that Jesus has the authority to declare us clean. See, most people think I'm basically good and I have to stop sin from getting in. Sin's out there but I, and I just have to keep it away from me. But in this passage, when Jesus is talking about how there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's a monumental statement what he's talking about. When he talks about all food being clean, it doesn't really impact us today, right? Because we're like, yeah, all food is clean. You wash it, it's clean. But for the Jews that Jesus was talking to, this turned everything upside, upside down because there were hundreds of laws about what you could or could not eat. But all of these rules, we'll get into this, we're, we're, we're meant to point at the real problem, the human heart. 
see, God gave all these rules about what you could and couldn't eat, what was clean and unclean to eat, right? For example, he said you couldn't eat shrimp. Couldn't eat shrimp. Okay, why did God say that? It's not because God has a problem with shrimp, but because there's a problem with your heart. And he wants to make you understand that your heart is unclean. So God puts into place all these rules that point out what's clean and unclean. And it's going to make sense when Jesus comes, but you have to understand that it's all meant to point out your heart. But the Pharisees, they they totally miss the point. They just focus on the rules. It's all about the shrimp, the shrimp, the shrimp. Keep it away from me. Don't touch it. Follow the rules and we're going to be all right. That's how we're going to keep ourselves clean. And Jesus says to them that you've missed the point of it all. The point of the shrimp and the pigs and all the stuff that you're not allowed to eat, it's, it was to show that there's a problem with your heart. It was to show you again that there's a, problem, there's a difference between clean versus unclean. And what God is trying to show you through the law is that if you turn these rules into your salvation, then how will you ever make sense of a Savior? If you don't work this out, if you don't understand that all the unclean and unclean laws were meant to point out to the fact that your heart is unclean, then you're never going to understand Jesus when he comes. And to back it up a little bit, you have to notice, you know, when you look at that passage in those little parentheses, Jesus didn't actually say that. It's Mark giving a little bit of commentary to the passage, and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't often do this, Mark. So it's important to pay attention when he does. What does he write? He says, Jesus declared all foods clean. He declared all foods clean. It reminds me, do, 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 do any of you guys watch The Office? Yeah. You can probably know where I'm getting at this, but there's one, there's a, the main character, this guy is Michael Scott, and uh, he's in some financial problems, so one of his coworkers is like, hey, you know, the answer to all your problems is to declare bankruptcy. Just get a fresh start. And so Michael's like, okay, so he walks in out into the office, and what does he do? He says, I declare bankruptcy! And the accountant that he works with comes up to him, and he's like, um, you know, I hope you know that uh, just because you said the word bankruptcy... Uh, nothing is actually going to happen. And what does Michael say? He says, I didn't just say it. I declared it. And it's silly, it's funny to laugh at because nothing happens. No greater authority is given to what we say if we declare it rather than just say it, right? But Jesus actually has the authority and his declarations matter. Mark, by adding this little detail, is saying, Jesus didn't just say that all foods are unclean, or that all foods are clean. Jesus declared that all foods are clean. And that's important because Jesus didn't take this lightly. Jesus has a very high view of God's words, and he's not saying that they were mistaken. He's not correcting the food laws. Again, Jesus is saying that they were given for a time to teach you and to point you to something greater. But he's declaring what the law was pointing to is now here. Because perfection, purity, righteousness, holiness, absolute cleanness is standing right here in front of you. And it's me. It's Jesus. You see, by declaring all foods clean, Jesus is saying that clean and unclean, they're no longer 
concepts for you to learn, but it's a reality that you are faced with. On the one hand, you have Jesus, who is perfect and righteous and clean in every way. On the other hand, you have us, unclean no matter how many rules we try to follow and focus on. Because the real problem is inside. You know, the passage says, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, Jesus is not tricked by the show or by the acting or the pretending. He's not easily fooled by the outward performance. The problem is the heart, and he knows it. If you lock yourself in a room for the rest of your lives, that won't fix the problem because the problem is within you. You'd still be an adulterer, a thief, a murderer, because the problem isn't out there, it's in here. The problem is this. My heart is defiled. Now, there are still some people who resist this idea. They're going to say, but I'm not a thief, and I've never murdered anybody. And What are you talking about? That's not me. And they go through life, and they don't see, and they think that they're pretty good, and they think that they're all right, and that they're mostly clean. But I guarantee you, that there have been moments in your life where things have come out of you, that ugliness and darkness has come out of you, and you're like, where did that even come from? For me, like, you can ask any new parent. In the first year of parenting a baby, I'm pretty open about it. It's, It's the worst year of your life. You don't sleep all that much. You're constantly tired. Babies aren't known for communicating very well. And so, it's hard for me to say, but there were days, there were nights when I was up with this restless, fussy baby and I was so utterly exhausted. I was so frustrated that nothing I did seemed to help that at my lowest point, I actually thought to myself, I understand actually why parents hurt babies. Because you're just so hopeless at that moment. You just start to think all these things that you never thought you would think. And before you're like, oh my gosh, Brian's a bad person. I've shared this with other new parents. You know what they say? I totally get that. I understand. And the question is, where did this ugliness come from? Because it was never taught to me. It never happened to me. I never learned it. Where did these dark and shameful thoughts and emotions originate from? It's just my unfilthy heart. It's because I'm unclean. It's now out there. It's in me. I think everybody can relate because it's going to happen to you. If it hasn't happened already, it will happen to you at some point in your life. When you lose your job, when you get dumped, when something happens to you and you're just exposed and vulnerable, there will be this ugliness that will come to the surface and you're like, where did that come from? It came from your heart. And it can be a hard thing to accept just how unclean our heart is. But if you look back to Zechariah, or in that passage that we kind of read in the beginning, you have Joshua, the high priest, standing before 
the holiness of God. And what is he doing? He's wearing filthy clothes. You know, a better translation is clothes that would be tainted by excrement before a holy God. How do you think this man is standing? Heads up, chest out? Or is he looking down the ground? Is he not able to look at the one who stands before him? I want to show you the next couple of words. Now Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Can you imagine the weight of those filthy clothes as they were taken off of Joshua? And can you imagine what it must have felt like to put on those clean, fine clothes back on? Can you imagine the, his surprise as his shame gave way to joy? Can you picture his head lifting up and a smile starting to creep across his face when he starts to understand that he can stand before the Lord? That question that we read, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in this holy place? God God can declare that this man can. This man can stand before God. Why? Because God has made him clean. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That, my friends, is what Jesus came to do. The more you see the uncleanness of your heart, the more you can see and treasure Jesus Christ. I want you to remember another man, a man in Mark 1, a man who had leprosy. Right, This skin ailment that's so obvious to see, an ailment that's so infectious and so condemned that people would send their own family members away, Uh, an ailment that is the epitome of uncleanness in a society that is obsessed with cleanness. No one would touch this man. Nobody would befriend him. He wasn't allowed to go into anybody's presence, but he walks up to Jesus, and what does he do? He falls on his knees, face down in the ground, before Jesus, and he said, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Did you know what Jesus does? He doesn't just say, be clean, but he touches this man. He touches this man that nobody else would touch, and he says, be clean. And as he touches this man, Jesus identifies with his uncleanness. The uncleanness of that man, the filth, the dirt, the disease, it's all transferred to Jesus. It's placed on Jesus, and the man is made clean. Because in this touch, this man is united with Christ. And that is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has come to make you clean. And this morning, I wonder how clean you feel today. Not in the relative, but in the absolute. I ask you to stop for a second. Stop comparing yourself to other people. And instead, I want to ask you if you think that you are clean enough to be found acceptable before God. What are you thinking about right now? What comes to mind that disqualifies you from that? Maybe it's something in your past. 
Perhaps it's something that you don't like to think about. Maybe it's something that you've done to somebody else or something that has been done to you. But I think that maybe Jesus has brought you here today because he wants to deal with it. And just like the man with leprosy, he wants you to bring that to him. If you would come and fall before Jesus today and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean, the scriptures tell us that Jesus will reach out to you. He will identify with you. He will be united with you. And he will take that uncleanness away from you and he will place it upon him. And he won't just say it, but he will declare that you are now made clean. Let's pray.